big thank you to all of those who have been leading us in our praise of God and helping us uh, as we've been worshiping God over the course of this day. Those who have been behind me, those who are down at the back of the church as well, who are, are helping with our audiovisual side of things as well. It is very much appreciated. I know that a lot of you here this evening are parents, and some of you are parents of younger children. Some of you here tonight are grandparents, and you're in that season of life where you are involved in child-minding duties. You're, you're getting grandchildren during the course of the week, or maybe you're getting a little bit past that stage now, and if you were being really honest, you're kind of relieved you've done your duties two times over with kids. Some of you here tonight are some people in our congregation, are teachers, or people who work with children in schools, and many of you are or have been volunteers. You have worked in BBGB and our Sunday activities with children, or you've helped out at holiday Bible clubs or something like that. And if that's the case, then inevitably you will have heard things like this along the way. You will have heard children say, I'm sorry, I promise I'll never do it again. You might even hear them say, I've learned my lesson. And yet before long, you find them doing exactly the same thing. It's a case of history repeating itself. But before we're too hard on our kids, do we really grow out of that? Maybe you can hear yourself this evening saying to a spouse or saying to a colleague, perhaps even saying to the Lord, I'm sorry, I won't do that again. I've learned my lesson. Things will be different now. But before long, you're doing the exact same thing over again, and history is repeating itself. As we read through this book of Judges, the constant message of God's people, the children of Israel, to the Lord is, Lord, we're sorry. We promise we'll never do it again. We've learned our lesson. Things will be different now. And yet before long, they are doing the exact same thing over again. In the history of God's people, in the story of the Old Testament, history was repeating itself. We're looking together on these Sunday evenings at the time of the judges. We discovered last week that this was a time when Israel, that nation that had been chosen by God and set apart by the Lord to be His special nation, that nation had lost the run of itself. God's people, the Israelites, had lost the plot. It was as if they were making it up as they went along. And last week we discovered that like the rest of the Old Testament, the book of Judges, the story that we read in this book, is a story of the people's failure. 
and God's faithfulness. Those are the two stories that sit side by side all the way through this book, and you'll see that in the coming weeks. In the case of the people's failure, we could describe the book of Judges as being a story of eyes. Because first of all, we have that summary of what the society was like at this time, that summary that you'll find in chapter 17, verse 6, and then in chapter 21, verse 25, where we're told of this time, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Or as the King James Version puts it, or the the ESV puts it, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And isn't that a great description of where we are at, of where our society is at? And that's what makes this book so relevant. Because we look around and we see our society is just like this. And that's what makes this so helpful because what we'll discover in the course of this story is a remnant of people who sought to be faithful to the Lord. And so they set us this wonderful example of how we should live in our time and in our society. This is a story of eyes, of the people's eyes, but then the Lord's eyes. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Again, that verse that we thought about for a time last week. And this is a repeated phrase in this book. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's such an instructive phrase because it's a great reminder in this world where it seems that people make it up as they go along that there is objective truth. There is a measure by which we can decide and see what is right and what is wrong. And it's not about how we see things, it's about how He sees things. That's the Lord's decision. He judges what is evil. He judges what is right and what is wrong. And so is it a case for us? Is it a case for you of your eyes or the Lord's eyes? That's a big challenge in this book. But we also thought about God's faithfulness because this book is part of a much bigger and greater story of a faithful God who saves His people. And again, we saw that last time in verse 16 in chapter 2, the provision that God makes. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them, that is His people, the Israelites, out of the hands of these raiders. And this is a big, big theme in this book, that God loves to save His people that he goes to great lengths to save his people. And we begin to see that here in chapter 3 and the story that we read about Ehud and the king of Moab. And if you were listening to that story, if you were in any way engaged in God's word as I read it just a while ago, then how could you possibly say that the Bible is a boring book? Because this is the story of 
a really daring, bold assassination. This is SAS stuff that we're reading tonight. And of course, it has some pretty gory details along the way as well. But the danger for us in reading a story like this, in looking at a chapter like this, is that somehow we, we fail to get past the, the guts, literally the guts and the gore of the story. And that maybe some of a more sensitive nature begin to think, well, hang on, what's this doing in the Bible? Where, how can this possibly belong in the Bible? Now, tonight here in this church, I know, I know you well enough to know that we are committed to the authority of God's Word, to believing in that. We do believe what Scripture says of itself, that it is God-breathed. It is God's Word to us. But sometimes when we're confronted with violence or actions that are done in the name of the Lord like this, well, well, some of us maybe step back a bit and think, well, what's that all about? And the tendency can be to just skirt around these passages and just ignore books like this. But tonight, let's take a look together at this passage to see what we can learn, to see what incredible encouragement it brings to us, because it does. And like most of the book of Judges, this is a time when God's people were under the rule of one of their more powerful neighbors. If you just scan down again, open up your Bibles to Judges 3 and scan down through verses 12 to 14, and you get a feel of what's going on here. Eglon, the fat king, this king of Moab, who enters into a coalition with two of the other neighbors of the Israelites, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and together they take the city of Jericho, or the city of Palms, as it's described in this passage, so that the Israelites are then ruled by Eglon for 18 years before this guy Ehud comes on the scene. And we then discover a fair bit of detail about Ehud and his daring actions. We discover that he's left-handed, that he's sent along with a party of people to represent the Israelites before this King Eglon, to bring tribute to him. In other words, to bring gifts to him, to keep him on side. But of course, what we discover is that Ehud had a very different present in store for the king. And we're told in verse 16 that he had made and concealed a sword that was a cubit long. So that would have been a foot and a half or half a meter, depending on whether you're old school or new school in your measuring of things. And then he manages to get the king alone by saying that he has a secret message to bring to him so that Eglon sends his advisors away and Ehud seizes his opportunity. And it's at this stage that things turn a bit James Bond on it. It maybe comes with a bit of a, a parental advisory. But this would make a great movie. This would make an amazing TV drama. Listen again to verses 20 and 21. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand 
He drew the sword from his right thigh and he plunged it into the king's belly. And what drama. It's like one of those mafia movies, isn't it? I've got a message for you. But when you really think about it, isn't this the ultimate way of the Lord to say, don't mess with my people? And yes, this is a horrible moment. There's no doubt about this. I believe that this is a hopeful moment. This is a hopeful moment as we think of the persecuted church worldwide, as we think of brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through unimaginable suffering because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because of their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. God saying, these are my people. No, don't mess with my people. And last week I said that this is a messy book. Well, it's literally messy here. We'll not dwell on it too much, but the writer already prepares us for what happens next, back in verse 17, by pointing out that Eglon was a very fat man. And then in the older version of the NIV, that's the one that I would read from here most times in church. Well, they very politely put it in verse 22, even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out of his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. And in that older version of the NIV, they very politely spur us the details. But in doing that, they actually fail to translate the original language accurately or anywhere near accurately. The newer NIV actually gets it better. It says, and his bowels discharged. And if you're reading ESV, I think it says dung and King James Version dirt. We'll just not go too deep into all of that tonight. But I mention that. I importantly mention that because it's a great reminder, this is real world stuff. People, this is real life. And it blows apart what many people would imagine the Bible to be. I get all of those preconceptions, all of those wrong ideas thrown at me all the time. The next time in someone's house, I'll just pull my Bible out and read Judges 3. That's the way forward. And I love the next part. I believe that actually there is dark humor in this. Ehad manages to do a runner while everyone was waiting for the king to come back out. And, and look, let's just picture the scene here. Verses 24 and 25. After Ehud had gone, he had escaped. The servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited, I love this phrase, to the point of embarrassment. And you can imagine them standing around going, well, you, look, you go and check and see what's going on. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. They saw their Lord, small L, 
fallen to the floor dead. And you've got to see the irony, given what had just happened and what they thought was happening in those moments. So that the killing of Eglon became a rallying cry. Ehud mobilized the the people of Israel, the men of Israel, and they headed out. And that day, they took the lives of 10,000 Moabites in verse 29. Now, I wonder why the writer of Judges goes into such minute and, let's face it, gory detail. What's that about? Well, surely it is to encourage God's people that God's enemies don't have the last laugh. Because think about who King Eglon was. Yes, he might be a, a, a figure of mockery for us, this big fat king, but think about it. Think about who he was, what he represented, and what he was doing. That he believed himself to be sovereign over God's people. He believed that he was in charge. And in the course of that, in the course of his reign, he made the lives of God's people hard and miserable. And let's not forget that he led them into idolatry. There's a a small detail there that could pass us by in verse 26, but look at it, where it deliberately mentions that as Ehud made his escape from the palace, he passed by the idols. That's what Eglon was all about. That's what made him tick. And I know that there are dads here tonight, and culture has changed. The role of dads has changed in our society over time. I wonder, were you or are you a hands-on dad? When we think about our younger children, you'll notice that I'm not mentioning mums you are just hands-on. That's, that's just what the job entails, and we love you for it. But dads, are you a hands-on dad? Well, we know that to be a hands-on dad, it gets messy. When I went to Union College, I was the baby of our year group, the ministry students. I was about one of the few not yet married and I used to come in every day, and Bellan sometimes wonders why we didn't get married sooner. Well, I'll explain right now. I used to come in, and I sat down at coffee time, and all these guys who were dads of toddlers and babies used to sit and tell the stories of the previous night and sickness, and I, I thought, that sounds like an absolute nightmare. But I ask this reverently tonight, How do you imagine our heavenly Father when it comes to His people? Do you regard Him, if I can put it like this, as a hands-on dad? Because what we see here in Judges is that He is the God of heaven who stoops down. He is prepared to get His hands dirty to rescue and help His children. And I love how the 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 evangelical Old Testament scholar, Dale Ralph Davis, a great commentator. If you read his book, I think you'd really enjoy it on, on Judges. Well, what he says is this, and listen to these words. He says, this is the glory of this passage. It tells us that Yahweh, the 
the Hebrew name for the Lord, that the Lord deals with the dirty, mixed-up affairs of life in which His people find themselves. He is not a white-gloved, standoffish God out somewhere in the remote left field of the universe who hesitates to get His strong right arm dirty in the yuck of our lives. And of course, we know this through Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who set aside the majesty of heaven in order to come to us and to save us. So that in the mess of our life, as you deal with illness, as you come through some kind of trauma or anxiety or, or encounter deep hurts, as some of you recently have come through bereavement and there is that crushing loss, that sense of loss, as we experience family difficulties, as we at times struggle with temptation, what comfort, the comfort of knowing that our God steps in. Some might regard Ehud as a ruthless, as a ruthless killer, but be sure of this to the Israelites, he was a great hero. But I want you to see tonight that he is not the hero of this story. There is only one true hero in this story, and it is the Lord. And here is the point that we must not miss as we read these stories, as we work our way through this book. The Lord loves to save His people. So that really the key verse in this chapter is not the one with all the guts and gore and intrigue and escape. No, the key verse in chapter 3 is verse 15, where we're told again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and He gave them a deliverer, Ehud. So that this story is not so much what Ehud did, but what the Lord did. God's intervention in response to the cries of His people, is that not a great encouragement to prayer? But one last thing, just before we finish, and that is that the verses, I want you to just to see the verses that top and tail the account of Ehud and his time as a judge. It begins with verse 12 here, in chapter 3, and we're told there again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon. Now, be sure of who that is. Eglon is not the guy who did the stabbing, the, the one who was sent to rescue. No, he's the, the bad king, the fat king of Moab. But the Lord, look at it again, because they did evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. And please be really clear about that. Eglon was in place, not because of his great power and his success. He was there because it was the Lord's will that he was an instrument of judgment to refine his people, to bring his people who had lost the run of themselves to their senses. And then how this account of Ehud's time ends, and for this we need to go into the next chapter, chapter 4, 
and verse 1, that after Ehud died, well, look at how it comes full circle. The Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And I hope that you can see the, the real tragedy of this, because it is that recurring cycle in this book and in the time of the judges, so that you will see that exact same introduction and conclusion many times as we meet with judges throughout this book. And when you see that recurring cycle, what does it make you think about the Lord? How would you view the Lord's actions in this book and during this period? Because how some people would regard it as weakness. There would be people who would look at that and judging it by their standards, they would say, that God allows himself to be messed around a lot. And his people keep doing the same thing and yet still he comes back to help them one more time. But we tonight, we view this story through the lens, if you like, through the glasses of the gospel. And so we see this for what it is. We see amazing grace and incredible mercy. And this is our great hope. You know, once again, when we come to a judge, as we come to Ehud tonight, we, we realize that he is a limited Savior. Yes, he brought God's people deliverance from Moab in a spectacular way, and at the end of that day, Moab was finished. That nation no longer had a grip over the Lord's people, but he was a limited Savior. Because as a leader, as a judge, he could not change the hearts of God's people. He could not change their ways. So that at the end of his reign, at the beginning of chapter 4, and we'll pick up the story next week, well, the people were still slaves to sin. They were still held in the, the bondage of idolatry, their, their allegiance to false gods. Nothing had truly changed. Now think about Jesus, our far greater Savior, and think about all of the things that we discovered about Him last Sunday evening. And we finish with this verse tonight from towards the end of Scripture in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, where in that revelation that John receives, the introduction is given as to the true identity of Jesus, who our Savior and our Lord Jesus is. And so it describes him in Revelation 1.5 as him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. A far greater salvation, an eternal salvation that impacts on our life here and now. And this is what Jesus has done. And do you know him? And do you know that rescue? I hope that if you take nothing else away from this book and from this story tonight, that there is one thing 
that will be written large in your minds in this week that lies ahead so that it would cause us to think about Christ and to look to Christ and to worship Christ and to turn to Christ. And that is that the God who we worship tonight, our God, He is a God who loves to save His people. And so we say of His Son, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen.